There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Public fruit orchards in the royal parks. A ban on politicians standing to be mayor. Libraries to serve pints of beer and the decriminalization of soft drugs. Hello, this is Finn Harper. You don't hear my voice on the Open City podcast very often, but I'm one of the the behind-the-scenes team who helped make the show. So this week, Londoners are going to the polls to choose our new mayor. It's an unprecedented election, having been postponed for a whole year due to the pandemic. We're going to be covering the voting in full on polling day itself, when Zoe Cave will be joined by the writer and commentator Owen Hathley on The Lundown to discuss the election results. But the mayoral manifesto I read from at the start is not from Sadiq Khan or Sean Bailey or Sean Berry, but rather the late musician, artist and manager of the Sex Pistols, Malcolm McLaren, who stood for mayor at the turn of the millennium with a truly remarkable campaign. So for now, rather than talk more about this year's election, today we're dedicating the whole show to the story of Malcolm's bid to be mayor. As he said at the time, it's the biggest job in London. Don't give it to a politician. Welcome to the Open City Podcast. If I were to sum up what exists today in terms of the battlefield, there are two words. One is authenticity, and the other, dare I say it, is karaoke. I am running to be your next mayor of London. My name's Sean Bailey, and I'm the fresh start that London needs. The president said he is a stone-cold loser who should focus on crime in London, not me. It's your life, your freedom, reclaim it. I'm Louisa Porritt, the Liberal Democrat candidate for mayor of London, and in the next 60 seconds, Hello, I'm Zoe Cave and welcome to the Open City Podcast and our 2021 alternative mayoral election coverage. Today we're looking towards an alternative future, or really an alternative past. A London without homelessness, greener streets, affordable homes, a place where drugs and brothels are decriminalised and libraries can serve Guinness. This was the vision of one man, Malcolm McCrane, the impresario, artist, performer, promoter and former manager of the Sex Pistols. If you're feeling a little bit disenfranchised with the 2021 mayoral election, then Malcolm McLaren had just the term to describe the situation we find ourselves in. A karaoke world is a world in which life is lived by proxy, and it's un- unencumbered by what I call the messy process of creativity. 
Exasperated by 18 years of Tory rule and bored of New Labour, in 1999 Malcolm entered the London Mayoral Contest. Backed by industry executive Alan McGee and Sony Music, Malcolm billed himself as an anti-corporate, anti-politician saviour of multiculturalism. Contrary to what you might think about the infamous ex-manager of the Sex Pistols, policy-wise he was inspirational and truly ahead of the curve. As to be expected, frank conversations about drugs, sex and alcohol as well as strong language feature throughout this episode. I had to get to the source of the infamous McLaren Manifesto. Having sadly passed away in 2010, I wasn't able to speak to the man himself. Instead, a few weeks ago, I tracked down Peter Culshaw, who managed Malcolm's mayoral campaign. Dodging a few April showers, I headed up to Stoke Newington to meet Peter and scratch a little deeper into Malcolm's world. I'll show you around. This is a historic. This is where Malcolm used to crash on the sofa in the front room. Yeah, this lovely. is the uh, Mexican themed bathroom. Uh, well, I'm Peter Culshaw. I was uh, an admirer of Malcolm and I met him at a party wearing an Indian jacket, which he admired. And he came up to me and we started talking about India and Bollywood and he invited me around for tea early 90s. We just hit it off, really, because he had a real interest in... I was doing a lot of stuff about global music, and he was interested in all kinds of music, so then I became his sort of music pal. Then we also had a lot of political discussions at various points. I was a very close friend, maybe my best friend for a while, mm. and we were spent Millennium Eve together and stuff like that, and then, then he, we did the mayoral thing, and I was his sort of agent or whatever, campaign manager. And what were your first impressions? An enthusiast, I have to say. He was really fascinated. And um, I have got a, a story about... He wanted me to find this Indian singer uh, for this project he was possibly doing about the horoscopes or something. Anyway, so I brought this young singer I knew, and she said... I'm going to wind him up. We're going to pretend I've never heard of him. It'll be a test of his character. And I thought, that's a bit of a ballsy thing to do. But OK, let's go in. And he said, I'm Malcolm McLaren. He said, oh, yes. And he just said, well, these are the things I've done. I've done, you know, I managed this group called the New York Dolls. And he played a track of New York Dolls. And then he said, I did this punk group called the Sex Pistols. I played the Sex Pistols. Then I did this thing called Duck Rock. And then I did this opera thing. And anyway, I'm doing this thing now. And there was not a minute, a second of, do you know who I am? Which a lot of celebrities would... And, and that was a point I kind of... I would say I always loved the guy. I thought, this guy, you know, is a really extraordinary guy somehow. And as we've mentioned, we are interested in his mayoral campaign, um, given how unenthused we are about the current one. Um, so, can we talk a bit about the manifesto? Who wrote it? Give us the sort of, if there anyone who doesn't know anything about it, what are the kind of the key highlights from it? London, one of the greatest cities in the world, going to have a mayor. And the candidates were this guy Frank Dobson for Labour, who was from up north, didn't even want the job. And then Geoffrey Archer for the Tories, who we knew was a crook. And a non-entity called Susan Kramer, sorry Susan, but you know. 
as the Lib Dems. And uh, they, they were the leading candidates. We thought, this is just outrageous somehow. And then there was a poll in the New Statesman, who you think should be there, and I think Richard Branson was one, and Malcolm was in the top, I don't know, five or so I don't know, maybe second. I don't know, anyway, he was in the list. And that sort of triggered something. Thought, why, you know, why not? And then Malcolm thought about it, and then we all met, me and Charlotte's and Kelly's girlfriend at the time, me and Malcolm, we just basically got drunk in Andrew Edmund's restaurant. And just jotted loads of ideas down on the back of fag packets. Uh, but then Malcolm went and wrote it all up. So, you know, so that was more or less it. But it was mainly, you know, the themes which we touched on about being anti-corporate, the idea of London being this creative hub, a pro-small business, pro-creativity. And it was quite green as well, you know. Again, it's things like trams something romantic about being in Eastern Europe, being on a tram. So he loved trams. Whether they're actually practical, we don't know. But I mean, it's a great idea to have trams in London, right? Um, or using the waterways more. And he was big on electric cars. So these are things that are going to be coming in. And there was, there was some headline-getting things, which were... So, for example, prostitution is going to exist. So why not legalise it? And then, so then the twist on that was the first one should be opposite the House of Parliament because, the, 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 you know, half the MPs are running around going to see brothels so it'll save time and they may as well, you know, that was obviously a provocation. But, uh, you know, with some sense and the same with legalising cannabis, for example. It's like, well, you, I think we were... Basically, I think we saw there should be some sort of age of consent, basically. If you're over, whatever, 18, and you want to have drugs or become a prostitute or whatever, whatever you want, you're grown up by then. But you obviously have to have some, some age limit. But, um, and then there was, the other, there was some other headline things like, um, have a Guinness drinking Dickens. That suddenly makes it much more appealing and memorable. Yeah. You know, see what I mean? We, so we, I think, oh, that would be, yeah, why, what should you do about libraries? Somebody said, and then, but that was the Malcolm magic. And, and the other thing that, from my understanding, is that he was this, an, you know, so anti-corporate, yeah. and if you have a shop, it has to be like an anti-shop. Well, I think that was a big thing about it. It's like, well, why do we need a party hack to be mayor? And uh, because we need someone to stand up for London. So the example being, if you're talking about decriminalising cannabis, for example, mm -hmm. the mainstream parties, they're worried about losing votes in swing seats in the Midlands or wherever, or the Red Wall or whatever. Whereas London may, may well be the right thing to decriminalise cannabis in London, but it might lose you votes in the Midlands or, you know, Surrey or something. So in other words, being an independent means you can stand up for London against the politicians yeah, yeah. and say what's good for London. Plus, we thought of having a sort of cabinet of talents whereby you have people, it doesn't matter what their political background is, if you've got somebody who knows about trams or transport or whatever, or whatever, you can have them as your advisors. It was like getting and John Bird from Big Issue, you know, he on the homelessness. Obviously people knew about stuff. Why don't they get a cabinet going? And then my what I thought was well, Malcolm isn't someone who's gonna spend all his time doing 
the boring stuff, really. But you have people who could do it, and then he can be a sort of figurehead. He can go to Paris and represent London and make big up London, and also just throw his weight around against the government when it needed. So we're going to leave Peter for the time being, along with Malcolm's fabulous fag packet manifesto. So who was Malcolm and where did this noxious mix of sex, style and subversion come from? Uh, my name's Paul Gorman, I'm a writer and um, I wrote the biography of Malcolm McLaren. Paul Gorman's biography on Malcolm goes into rich detail about his life and work, London and New York's cultural revolution and so much more. I began by asking Paul what it was like meeting him for the first time. I mean, I don't want to overplay it. I, I wasn't a great friend of his, but I did know him over many years. I first met him when I was 15 in the mid-70s through an older brother who uh, worked in a shop which was not far from the one that he ran with Vivian Westwood at the time. And I met him in the pub. And I remember him very well because he'd been interviewed in New Musical Express the year before talking about the clothes he made for various pop stars. And because I've always had the little thing about visual identity and fashion and those people who are quite interesting, I knew about him. So I was very impressed to meet him. I remember he stole all my brother's cigarettes, but he did that throughout his life. There was a packet of fags and he'd just pick them up. Very French thing, I think. He'd just pick them up. For me, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was wearing something and he said, why are you wearing it? I think it was a Jimi Hendrix T-shirt, which I got at a jumble sale. And I said, I like the colours. He said, but that's not enough. You know, you have to, clothes have a reason. What do we know about his family and where he grew up and how um, much that influenced him and how sort of like a Londoner was he? He was very rooted in uh, North East London in particular. Um, his great, great grandfather, uh, Solomon Corrie, came over from the Diamond Ateliers of Amsterdam uh, he was a Sephardic Jew who'd, you know, they'd all stemmed from the Iberian Peninsula and he arrived in London in the 1860s um, and uh, one of his sons, Abraham, uh, was uh, McLaren's great-grandfather and he became a diamond dealer. He, he was called a general dealer as well, I think he dealt in many things, but he became a diamond dealer and made quite a bit of money, so moved out of Hackney and the East End proper, up, up the hill. McLaren's grandmother was born Rosa, Rose Curry, and she had uh, theatrical ambitions as a, as a young woman, but her father uh, put a stop to that. And you get a sense from her because uh, she figures large in McLaren's life later on, that there's this frustrated performer within her. And apparently she was uh, an outrageous person. And she's really, he, he called her the first punk rocker, the first sex pistol. But what did that look like for a woman in that time? Well, I think that because she was a matriarch by that point, she'd had uh, given birth to uh, McLaren's mother, mm -hmm. Emily, and so, but she wasn't respectable. And I think that in a way, because they were outsiders, because they were Jews, because they were immigrants from a diaspora, mm -hmm. uh, that was allowed in a way. She was allowed to not behave as a, a genteel English woman of her yeah. age should. And so uh, when McLaren was born, his father was a, a young Scottish guy, a, a London Scottish guy, uh, Peter McLaren. And um, he was overwhelmed by this overbearing grandmother and just the general family situation, which was one of huge rows and disagreements. And, you know, there'd be uh, 
bitterly uh, arguing with each other. But in fact, that was the way they scratched along. Mm. And for Peter McLaren, this was not only too much, but also his young wife, McLaren's mother, Emily, um, was promiscuous. Mm. That's the only way we can and say it, really. But this was during the war. McLaren was born in '46, but his older brother was born in 1943, uh, just ahead of him during the war. And they'd, they'd sort of suffered the trauma of war, you know, five, six years living in London. Um, and um, Peter McLaren, McLaren's father, couldn't take this anymore. And he left when McLaren was 20 months old. Living next door was the grandmother, Rose Corrie Isaacs, as she was by then. And she saw in the young McLaren these auburn curls that he had. She stopped, you know, she wouldn't get them cut. And uh, so she invested a lot in him. She took him out of school after one day, uh, home tutored him by giving him you know, the classics to read. And he had to go through them laboriously. He claimed that it took him a year to read Wuthering Heights. And she told him about Dickens and um, that uh, Fagin was actually a real person who was far too clever to have been caught, as Dickens told it, and escaped to Australia and built Sydney. You know, she told him all these myths and legends which he willingly bought into because his father had disappeared and his mother had basically rejected him. Mm. And so he always said that he he came from a family which had no rules and he didn't have an understanding of relationships. And I think that's borne out by the the relationships that he later conducted. Erudite, fashionable, blessed with razor-sharp wit and an eye for the newest trends, Malcolm opened a shop with Vivian Westwood on the King's Road in Chelsea called Sex. Suddenly, opportunities in London were opening up for Malcolm left, right and centre. The world was his oyster. And before I go on to tell you about how the millennium election unfolded for Malcolm, I want to quickly stop and tell you a little bit more about the Open City podcast, the show that shares fascinating stories about London's past, present and future. We create this podcast and make sure that it's free for everyone to be able to listen to, enjoy and to hopefully learn a little bit more about their city. In order to be able to do this, we rely on the kind support and donations of our Open City friends. If you are in a position to support us, you can donate the equivalent of a pint or a coffee and that makes sure that this podcast can continue to be free for everyone. If you are interested in in doing that, then please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash support. If you aren't, that's absolutely fine, but please do share, like, retweet, subscribe. It makes such a difference to us and the reach that we can have with this show. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Open City's alternative mayoral election campaign with me, Zoe Cave. Can I vape when we're doing this? Or am I going to ruin the recording? I'm on Skype with Scott King. Yeah, all right. Well, I'll, I'll just no, I'll just be honest as I recall it because it was all quite very funny and very, we, you know. I'll, so we'll say much now. I'll wait till we officially start. Scott worked on Malcolm's mayoral campaign back in 1999. Well, my name is Scott King. I'm a graphic designer, come artist, come writer of sorts. I'm not sure exactly what I do, and my connection to Malcolm uh, came about in. I think late 1999, through when we were, uh, Matt Wally and I did a project called Crash. We had a show at the ICA in London. And it was funded really by a friend of mine who was by Diesel. And my friend of mine was head of marketing there at the time. And um, he, he got to know Malcolm. So we met Malcolm through this friend of mine called Paul Poole, who was a kind of marketing man. 
and uh, Malcolm really liked the crash exhibition that was at the ICA, and from that we we got involved with his campaign to become mayor of London. And the idea really was just the idea was to make a a poster campaign and a sticker campaign that would sort of blitz the city of London, not just the city of London, but London. Um, that was the original idea that we'd make this kind of very graphic, very bold poster campaign and all these stickers, almost like I guess you'd see more in Berlin than in London, you know, or you, got to, you can't go into any bar in Berlin that's not covered in stickers. That was the idea. And the, the stickers, I can't remember how many stickers were, like six, ten, twelve stickers, there was more than there was a dozen stickers, and they all, each one had one of Malcolm's kind of declarations or his, his policies that he intended to instigate when he became mayor of London, which were really quite prophetic when you look back at some of them now. They were quite visionary things, you know, things, some things that became true, you know. Uh, and this seemed quite ludicrous at the time. I mean, things that obviously don't get taken up as he intended them, but I think one of them was to to have a chairlift across the Thames, which became kind of true in a, in Boris's uh, when Boris was mayor of London. That kind of one that goes from Greenwich to God knows where is you know the least used chairlift in the world. Perhaps. There's that, but there's also things like making museums free, which did happen. I don't know if they're all free again now, but it certainly happened at a point. Um, other things like having bars in libraries, so you could have a pint of Guinness. Um, you know, read, go to the library and have a pint of Guinness, which which didn't come true. But I think what happened to pubs in the last twenty years has become true, where they become more like libraries than pubs. So these kind of hipster pubs, where these kind of sort of places of worship, where you go to worship Real Ale and Peterhead Cod, and everything is localized. So kind of the depubbing of pubs to a degree. You know, this kind of I call it Mumfordization of pubs, really. And I'm sure this is not what Malcolm imagined, but it's kind of you know kind of it, it, his ideas sort of become true in a kind of hideous way where in my opinion where you know you've got people in pubs playing board games and they look like they should be in a library and, and, that's, and there's 27 different real ales to choose from you know it's more library like than an old-fashioned pub in my opinion so there's you know that kind of became true by accident um i can't remember lots of the other ones but i, I remember looking at them not long ago and thinking my god you know these really you know he, he was actually predicting the kind of future really um, so Scott, tell us a bit about how you got involved with Malcolm. Well, I mean, Matt and I, you know, because we, the thing we did, Matt Wally and I, the, the project we did, and we still do occasionally called Crash. I should tell you a little bit about that. It makes sense of it, really, because Matt and I were kind of obsessed by punk, you know, by, by really by Sex Pistols, but all sorts of other aspects of punk and the, and the whole idea of DIY and the whole idea of kind of it sounds corny now, but yeah, kind of anti-establishment, on you know. Not believe it. We had this big thing about what we called Media London. Media London is one word, and we were, very, you know, and the whole Crash idea was to protest about the idiocy of certain aspects of the media. So when we first started Crash, which was the start, early nineteen ninety seven, Britpop was it's kind of in its dying days in retrospect, but as was lad culture. But we were still very much the predominant media culture or youth media culture was very much about the new lad and about Britpop, and we were very anti that, and we thought it was a kind of idiotic, kind of flag waving, and a kind of sort of you know, last breath of an imaginary empire and all this kind of thing. We thought it was very retro and, and, and conservative. <clears throat> but Crash for us was like almost like we always thought of it as like a punk band. We thought of it, <clears throat> we were too cowardly to get on stage with instruments or whatever. So we made a magazine. And so I can't tell you how, how exciting it was for us to get to meet Malcolm, given obviously his role within the Pistols and everything else. Um, so we were very uh, excited to meet him. And we were, I think we were a bit wary as well, you know. Um, and we didn't really know how serious he was about becoming, wanted to be mayor of London, or if it was a kind of stunt or whatever it was. 
Um, but no, it's great to meet him. And we, I, I remember he took us, I forget the name of the restaurant, but it was obviously his local seafood restaurant on Warren Street, I think. And we met him in there quite a few times. And he kind of held court, you know, you were very much in his court and he spoke and he listened, you know. But it, but that was great. I mean, we were only young, we were only like 26, 27, something like that. So, it was, you know, for us, it's that kind of thing, if, you, if you're a provincial and you move to London, you know, as Matt and I both were, Matt's from Norwich and I'm from Yorkshire, uh, the idea that meeting, going to London and meeting Malcolm McLaren, it's almost like meeting Dick Whittington or something, isn't it? You know, it's sort of like a, a, a London myth, you know. So we were very honoured that we, he liked our work and he wanted us to do this thing. Um, and when you met Malcolm in, in like, 1999, you were probably in your late 20s and had sort of missed the punk era. Um, what was punk's ap- appeal for you? I think it was never just about the music, it was, and, it, and it was never just retro. It was about this idea of, of resistance in some way, really, that, doesn't have to, you know, that, that was highlighted in popular culture in Britain at that time. But, of course, it existed way before that forever and carries on to exist in different forms now. So, you know, so, again, for us, an easy thing for us would have been to connect the pistols and even the kind of the old that old t-shirt that you know the kind of whose side you on kind of t-shirt and now that would relate to Wyndham Moose's blast at the beginning of the 20th century so it's very much you know we, we just saw the pistols as part of the lineage of things that we were interested in it wasn't that it wasn't it, we weren't on King's Road with Mohicans or anything it was nothing it wasn't that it was just it connected to lots of other things and that and, it, and so punk was one of the things that we were interested in within this kind of vast network of Resistance sounds very dramatic, but you know, protest resistance, you know. But 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 um, I think also for us a very important this idea of pop protest. You know, the, the Crash Project we did, it was very much about trying to get into the mainstream. It wasn't about a crusty version of you know being in a field and doing your own thing. It was very much about wanting to intervene somehow in the media. And of course, that's what punk was about as well. The punk that we liked. You know. This idea of resistance is crucial to understanding Malcolm. I asked Paul Gorman to unpack this idea a bit more for me. How did radical politics, art and pop music feed into his vision for the election campaign? He engaged with politics first while a student, Mm. 1965, 1966. There were big uh, rallying points for youth, apartheid, you know, the Vietnam War. And McLaren engaged in demonstrating and protesting against those. But he also gravitated to the wilder side of student politics, you know, the more active side. And he talked about, you know, the ways in which he and his uh, friends really dominated the streets in that way, by protest, because it hadn't been seen in that form before. Mm. If you think about the CND protests of the early 60s, they're all singing Kumbaya and wearing duffel coats and not being quite nice, you know. These people were actively taking on the older generation and the authorities, Mm. you know, via uh, active protest. And so that's where he got his first interest in politics. And it was radical politics all the way. At the same time, he was engaging in his interest in radical art. So he saw one of the early exhibitions which featured Andy Warhol. He went to uh, an exhibition by Robert Rauschenberg uh, and was very impressed with his assemblages he really gravitated to people like Alexander Trocchi, who was the beat poet, you know, the heroin-abusing beat poet of London, who was quite available. And William Burroughs was living in London as well, and he was really impressed with the ways in which Burroughs approached literature as art, you know, using cut-ups and collage and all of these techniques which 
later emerged in his work. And so there's this intertwining, as you say, of radical art and radical politics during the 60s, but he gravitated to fashion as a means of expression. And it wasn't just as a means to make money. It was a valid attempt to use visual identity to make a statement. And that hadn't really been done in fashion before. If you couldn't make it as an artist, or he wanted to make it as a new kind of artist, fashion was where he pitched up. And he always called it a strange expression, but he actually used it for the first time in the introduction to one of my books, where he said fashion was the place to be because it was the musical end of painting. What's clear is that when Malcolm entered the ballot in 1999, he came equipped with an extraordinary skill set. As a political outsider, this is what made him dangerous. Back to Peter Culshaw. The idea of a celebrity outsider coming in mm. as, I mean, this was, you know, ahead of the game. I mean, obviously with yeah. Trump, I mean, Zelensky was his comedian, his president of Ukraine now. I mean, so there was... There was a chance of it all happening, I would say that. And um, I also said this in the book, but I mean, we worked with Alan McGee and uh, they were, their team was saying, oh, obviously it's not going to work, is it? But that was like, you know, Michael said, that's like going in the ring, somebody cuts your balls off when you go in the ring. He, in other words, he didn't know. It could have turned into something... Well, they saw it as a pure marketing thing because they were used to marketing groups like Oasis or yeah, Horrible yeah. Scream. And, you know, that's all about the put-on, which they'd learned from McLaren in the first place. I yeah. mean, I think Mark was a genuine radical. They were sort of posy radicals. In fact, I think I was thinking I made two mistakes. One was because uh, Eddie Saunders and McGee were, had basically turned Oasis from a pub band in Edinburgh, the biggest band in the world, we sort of slightly gave them too much. These people must know what they're doing. Right. A little bit. Right. You know, Malk was a real visionary mm. and a real subversive. But so. then this is this sort of, like, loaded comparison with Trump. Like, how? what do you guys think of that? Is that... Well, I think that it's really... Um, it, once again, it's part of that thing about foreshadowing, prefiguring, knowing <laughs> yeah. what's coming down yeah. the pike and understanding the people who have a constituency outside of politics can take people with them politically. Mm -hmm. And I think he really understood that very early on. The idea that this was an actual potential runner, it's like, how could that be possible? He hasn't even, it's not an MP, whatever, you know what I mean? Whereas it was, it was a possibility. And it became through with Trump, Zelensky, Beppe, Grillo, and these kind of people. More than Trump or any of those people, Malcolm was a political creature. The political was personal to him. He always said about pop music or creative expression that it had to be had to have sex subversion and style and politics. Um, and so he'd been talking about politics. I mean, the Sex Pistols and their provocations, which came from him largely, were a political provocation against the kind of well, not against the kind of, but against the repressive attitudes of Mm. Britain at that time and the the hangover from the empire and we were still fighting all of that politics really are at the centre of everything he he did and neither of those things you can say (laughs) you know you can associate Donald Trump with or any of these other people so he had roots and culture and it sounds like using you know that popular culture 
not being just dismissed as something either like working class or gendered or racialized. But, but he followed Binyamin as yeah. well, who believed that in the ephemera and the flotsam and jetsam, you found out what a culture was yeah. about, and then he followed, you know, the artists who made assemblages out of found objects and you know to to create something new. So all of this was percolating in his mind all the time whenever he applied himself to anything. My next question was why do you think that it wasn't successful? I think you have to look at the political context and what was happening in terms of New Labour at that point. The election was what, a year away? I think it was 2001, wasn't it? Well I think 97, everybody was quite enthusiastic after 18 years of Tory rule, blah blah blah, but by then, I mean the point is Malcolm was very early thinking that Blair was a fraud and a karaoke prime minister. And he was very early with that, I think. But it wasn't to the government's, in, in the government's interest to have this free radical mm. wriggling around and unable to control him. And in a way, I think that having McGee involved helped them because yeah. then they could use that. And also, you remember, you've got Ken Livingstone, who's this maverick figure who'd been very, very powerful in London in the 80s, uh, hovering around, you know, waiting for his move, you know, being the ultimate politician in a way. Mm. And he's also posing a great threat to Tony Blair's and the the new Labour control over the direction of the party for the next Mm. few years. And so this this is quite a fraught situation, regardless of having Malcolm involved. And once you guys enter, you know, and fall onto the stage, it's kind of, well, wait a minute, we can't control this. You know, our boy Frank Dobson looks like a loser. I made a mistake in that we pushed the independence thing very hard very early on, like London should have an independent. And that actually had had an effect on the polls. So then it said, originally, 10% of people said they would like to independent. Then it got up to about 60% because we were winning the argument. And then Livingston's people said they'd seen these polls and said, yeah, maybe he could stand as an independent, which he did because he'd left the Labour Party. He said he would never, ever leave the Labour Party. So that was, that was bad strategy on my part, I have to say. I think we should have just like rolled it along and then done the independent argument when it was too late for Livingston to get in. I mean, your first statement on the uh, leaflet is the political party machinery is more interested in maintaining power than promoting the well-being of London. The mayor should protect the people of London from government and fearlessly lobby on Londoners' behalf. I mean, you're basically telling New Labour to fuck off, aren't you? Malcolm McLaren's bid to become mayor ultimately fell through. But when we think about Malcolm's legacy, one word really comes to mind. Magic. Every meal in the restaurant was somehow memorable. You were then living as, you know, in a way how you wanted other people to live. So in other words, you're, there's a sort of edge or a, a sort of vibrancy of almost every moment. And I think that that comes through with the manifesto. We get back to the serious joke thing. He's actually quite serious about yeah. this business. I think there were all these archetypes. There's, there's, there's the tricks, the clown, there's the priest, there's the shaman in all cultures. And he was all, all those things. Actually. He had this project at uh, Goldsmiths where he would wrap bricks, he would make a note saying magic's back, put it on a brick, wrap it in a package, tie it up with a nice bow and then chuck it through a church window so that the priest or vicar would <laughs> open it and it would say magic's back. So it would be anti-Christian, it would be a pagan statement about life and what we're complaining about is the lack of magic in in politics and the culture and the mayoral elections Mm. (laughs) 
I mean, at least Rory Stewart was an interesting character. But I think that that magic, that interest in magic, and I think that he felt that London was losing it. The London he loved, the city he loved, was losing it. And that's a, a major impulse here. And it is quite interesting that he left London for good mm. in 2002. Yeah. I think probably at the beginning mm. of the year, so not long after this had all played out. And so he moved to the other cities he loved, Paris mm. and New York, and buzzed between them. So if I were to kind of summarise if for what the context might be now, like I've got a nine-to-five, a commute, I get the same coffee every day at Pret, and it's you know my life is efficient and easy and there's every stage I don't really have to think about it because I tap my phone I you know everything's kind of standardized to make it easy efficient because I'm supposed to be meant to be more productive by doing it like that Malcolm's take on it would be for all those kind of interactions that I have going about my day how can you subverse it or make it jarring to bring me out of that kind of like stupor exactly. check myself and remind, I don't know, remind myself what it's all about? Or? Well, to live, because yeah. he, he had this theory for the last 15 years of his life about karaoke, this is karaoke culture that you're living. Yeah. Essentially, it's ersatz. Whereas uh, karaoke versus authenticity. And so authenticity is the lived experience. Karaoke is everything in hindsight. So Blair was the first karaoke prime minister, he right. used to say. This manifesto, in a way, can be read as an attempt to enliven and intervene in the everyday life Mm -hmm. of London. And his point about authenticity was that it was messy. And his point about Mm. karaoke culture is that it's totally clean and it has Mm. no chaos to it. Do you think of how New York was in the 70s and 80s? Times Square, you'd have the black guys playing chess, you'd have the little bookstores, you'd have all the porno places. And now, of course, it's fantastically clean and nice. And whereas... At the time, if you think within one mile in New York, they, they hip-hop came along, salsa, photographs, all that stuff, punk, disco. This was, you know, incredibly creative, and I think that's what appealed to him in New York, and he was trying to bring some of that New York thing here, which existed anyway, but just that sort of chaotic energy and a sense of possibilities really. This point about the vision for London, London should be the most creative city in the world at the vanguard of new multi-ethnic cultural and business ideas. As a child of the diaspora, Mm -hmm. he recognised that, you know, London is no better than the people who come and live here, Mm -hmm. whether for safety or for other reasons. And they're the people, we are all the people who've come from somewhere else eventually who are making this city great. And he, he was really anti that kind of closing down of barriers. And so he wanted a flag for London as well, a multi-ethnic flag, which I think is a beautiful thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of a, it's a distillation of the man himself. I think it could have worked. I think, it, you know, I really feel like it wasn't impossible. Big thanks to our guests, Peter Coleshaw, Scott King, and especially Paul Gorman, who laid the foundations for this show. You can pick up his superb biography, The Life and Times of Malcolm the Crown, which came out last year, from all good bookshops. Stay tuned for our weekly architectural news roundup, The Lundown, as well as our next mini-series, Collaborating with British Land, coming up. I've been Zoe Cave. See you next time. Bye-bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.